everything we need to make a movie from dialogue, scene description, action, props, costumes, sound, and visual effects. It's all right there in the screenplay. Sugar the Play, a cash team production, is looking for actors and singers to fill several slots for this upcoming live play. For more information, please call 216-394-8926. That's Sugar the Play, auditions at 216-394-8926. Sugar the Play, a cash team production, is looking for actors and singers to fill several slots for this upcoming live play. For more information, please call 216-394-8926. That's Sugar the Play, auditions at 216-394-8926. Good morning and welcome to Talk Back Live. Thank you for joining us today. We've got a great show ahead of us uh, this morning. Please go to our uh, page, our Facebook page, our YouTube page, like and subscribe. And um, also, if you're viewing out there or listening out there, give us, go to our chat room and uh, leave a comment or a question. We've got a special guest for you today. Today, we're going to talk about the Russian invasion in Ukraine. 
and I've got an expert with me today. I have retired Colonel Robert Resnick. He's also a JAG officer, and we're going to just let him loose and get right down to it. Um, the On the intro there, you saw a clip about the Black Girls Film School, which is creating quite a buzz around the film industry and the theater industry. Uh, what they have is a collection of media experts who have one goal in mind, and that is to increase the number of Black women, Black women wanting to participate in film, stage, and media. So be sure go to their website. That's blackgirlsfilmschool.com. If you have any interest or questions about what they're doing, I highly encourage you to do that. Well, uh, thank you for tuning in also uh, on uh, this morning's show. I want to offer the family of former uh, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright to her family. Our condolences here from the uh, from Talk Back Live. She did pass away earlier this week. She was the 64th Secretary of State the first woman uh, to hold that position. She did pave the way for Condoleezza Rice and for Hillary Clinton, uh, who were also Secretary of State. So we want to send that out to her family and to all those that are viewing. Okay, well, we're gonna get right down to it. I'm so happy to have my special guest with me today and we're gonna get to the meat of it. I'm gonna let him loose. And remember, if you have a question or comment, comment for formal, former Colonel Robert Resnick, JAG officer. He's my special guest today. Hello, Robert. Good morning. Great to be here with you. Awesome to have you with me today on Talkback. We've got a lot of information I want to cover, a lot of questions I want to ask you. You're my expert for today. We're going to talk about the Russian invasion in Ukraine and the effects that it's had uh, on the rest of the world and, of course, on the people of Ukraine. Uh, the Russian invasion and Ukraine took place almost a month ago now, just about a month ago, actually. They went into uh, to Ukraine and um, invaded there. It was probably, well, it was the first uh, invasion in a European country ever since World War II. Is that correct? That's what they're saying. And I suppose you could say that's true. It's certainly the only large scale invasion in Europe since the World largest. War II. Yeah. You know, we have to remember the Balkans and some of the conflicts there when Yugoslavia split up. And I think people living there may choose to use the word invasion, but those were certainly very different than what we have today. Yeah. Uh, the largest military attack on Europe, on a European state. And of course, you mentioned the Baltics since World War Two. There have been twenty one thousand killed. 1.9 thousand injuries, approximately 10 million people displaced. There have been a, over uh, one point, there's been about 1.7 thousand buildings destroyed, many residential buildings. Um, and there's been over $100 billion in damage in Ukraine so far. So let's start, if I may, with what, what's the theory, first of all, behind going in invading Ukraine? From my understanding and help my viewers understand, it started with NATO. It started with the Ukrainian, the Ukraine government wanting to join NATO. Okay. What's your thoughts on that? Do you agree with that assessment or not? No. And, and I'll, I'll, let me answer your question directly and then I'll give the background on, on why. I don't believe that's true at all. I think that's the typical Russian disinformation campaign because they needed to have an excuse either for their own people, 
uh, or for others uh, to try to justify what they've done. I don't believe that there's any validity to the issue with NATO, and I'll explain why in just a moment if I can. The first thing that I wanted to say is under international law, there's the concept of use ad bellum, which obviously when you talk about law, there's always a lot of Latin. Maybe you have some Latin speakers out there who took a year or two in school to try to help their, their test performances. I don't know, but uh, it basically means the legality of going to war. And under international law, there are only very limited reasons why a country is allowed to initiate armed conflict with another country. And that would be, first of all, in self-defense, you're always allowed the right of self-defense. And then if not, there really isn't much, much else. I mean, you have to have really a very strong need to, uh, to do that. And, and absent self-defense, you would almost need international approval, such as a United Nations resolution or something like that, to, uh, to be able to wage war against another nation. And so this idea of Ukraine wanting to join NATO, even if it were true, does not meet one of the international law requirements uh, or, or authorities for initiating an armed conflict with another, with another country. Uh, and so under, under a strict international law analysis, there is no justification whatsoever for Russia's aggression against Ukraine. Uh, so, so that- Okay. So Ukraine being a sovereign nation, which we all know, uh, the legality of it all, they have the right then to make that decision and that, and that option if they chose to go and join NATO, correct? Well, that's right. And so uh, Ukraine as a sovereign nation, as any nation in the world, has the right to enter agreements with any other nations, whether they're military, political, economic, whatever you want to say, uh, nations have you know, the right to act in their own self-interest. And if they're not causing harm to somebody else, if they're not attacking somebody else, there's really little anybody can do about that. And so as an affirmative statement, Ukraine absolutely has the right to request to join NATO. There was no guarantee NATO was prepared to accept them. They were on a long-term path for the, you know, NATO has a process. And, you know, people have criticized how legitimately they follow that process. That's for another day. But there is a process involved in, in right. demonstrating the capabilities of your military, the competency of your democracy, your adherence right. to liberties, all the different things that allow a person or a country to enter the NATO alliance. And Ukraine was on a path to do that. And certainly the current administration was moving Ukraine in that direction. And it was clear to everybody that they were certainly going to file a formal request with NATO for membership. And so Putin uh, has you know, decided he certainly didn't want that. And so the, even if that was his reason, of course, as we know, as we know, international law wouldn't have said that that justifies attacking you know, Ukraine to change the regime into a regime that was loyal to Russia or otherwise not willing to join NATO. Uh, but the thing with Putin's invasion is it's really not forced by NATO because NATO is a defensive alliance. If you look at the history, you know, ever since the end of World War II, when NATO was formed, NATO has been a defensive alliance. NATO has never attacked Russia or any of its client states. NATO has never attacked Eastern Europe. Uh, NATO is a defensive alliance, and it was designed and established because of the Soviet era uh, aggression, that Soviet foreign policy was to someday take over Europe, or at least that was the belief, and only a collective defense of Europe would prevent a Soviet invasion pushing from Eastern Europe all the way across to you know, France and the United Kingdom. And so the NATO alliance, as a defensive alliance, maintained that uh, freedom for the West of, you know, Western Europe, and ultimately when the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc 
fell and many of the Eastern Bloc nations turned to democracy, uh, those countries joined NATO. And as NATO members, they don't have any hostilities with Russia, no military hostilities anyway. They're probably not great friends because of the history there and the oppression by what was the Soviet empire. But uh, they, you know, they, they don't do anything towards Russia. In fact, they have trade. They have all kinds of economic relations with Russia to include you know, Russia's uh, oil and gas uh, exports. So there, there's been stability. There's been no attack on Russia. Here's the issue for Mr. Putin. Ukraine First of all, Ukraine has been a sovereign nation. Yes, it was under the Russian Empire, was part of the Soviet Empire, so it didn't have its independence, not because it didn't want it, but because it was oppressed by the Soviet Union. But it was historically a country, it is a culture, it is a people, distinct from the Russian people, even though there's tremendous overlap since they have a, a huge border and a lot of cross-border, you know, cross-population over the centuries. But Ukraine was always considered by Russia, especially in, under the Soviet era, as the breadbasket for the Soviet Union, that Russia doesn't have enough fertile land because of the size of the country to produce enough food for itself. And it always relied on Ukraine to produce wheat and other crops uh, so that they can export those crops to Russia. And so when, when Ukraine was part of the empire, it was forcibly done. And under the Stalin era, they starved to death the Ukrainian people and stole all of the food that they were producing in Ukraine, brought it back to Mother Russia so that the Russian people could eat and the Russian regime could hoard, basically, and the Ukrainian people starved to death. Millions of people starved to death um, as a result of that. And this, is, this was under Stalin, and it was before World War II. And so, right. you know, Ukraine's desire to be an independent country uh, is, is so clear a case to make, right? There's no doubt that they deserve to be independent based on their, their history as a people, the oppression they suffered under the Russian Empire and the Soviet Empire, and the fact that they have the right as a sovereign people to maintain an independence. So, okay. Let me, yeah. let me ask you this, staying there with, uh, with the history Thank you so much for sharing that history of the Ukraine as, as in its relationship to Russia. Let's go back to 2014 when Russia invaded Crimea, Crimea, and they based it on the fact that they were still Russian-speaking citizens there, and they wanted to protect them and maintain their culture, the Russian culture, if I understand it correctly. How come they were? How come Russia was allowed to even invade? Crimea back in 2014. Yeah, so certainly Russia was not allowed to. That was a clear violation of international law. They violated Ukrainian sovereignty. And it, it wasn't just the Crimea. You also had the two areas, uh, the Donbass, and I forget the, the name, I apologize, but right north of the Donbass in, in eastern part of Ukraine. And so what the Russians did was they, they made up another story. This is what they do. This is not new. This is, they've done this for generations. They use disinformation campaigns. And so what they say that the, the Russian-speaking populations of those eastern Ukrainian areas uh, were being um, subjugated, were being oppressed by the Ukrainian people. Uh, and it wasn't true, but that's what they would say so that it would give them some, some justification, you know, as, a, as an anti-genocide kind of thing to cross the Ukrainian border, violate their sovereignty under the auspices of protecting a people that was being oppressed, which that could be an exception to international law if it were true, except it was not. And it's interesting because just to fast forward, those Russian communities are very much against this invasion. Those Russian communities have been remained they mostly are. loyal to the Ukrainian government. So that tells you that they weren't being oppressed, right? But going back to 2014 to answer your question, 
NATO has always had an understanding that even after the fall of the Soviet Union, that Russia as a large power had a sphere of influence. And NATO was always going to be very careful to not make it look like it was going to encroach on Russia's borders because that would be a trigger, just like we wouldn't want, you know, let, let's say there was still a Soviet Union and the Soviet Union took over Canada, right? We would not like that at all. We would feel very, very threatened if that were to, were to happen. So you can understand. So we, we, NATO and the United States has always had an understanding that Russia could still have a sphere of influence as long as they, you know, treated, you know, didn't violate, you know, people, you know, didn't oppress the people or whatever kind of thing that we just wouldn't interfere along their borders because that would trigger a World War III scenario and we would recognize that they have a greater interest than we do in what happens right on the other side of their borders. And so in 2014, and I, I don't necessarily agree with the lack of a U.S. response in 2014, but uh, it goes back to 2008 when Russia invaded the state of Georgia right to their south, and we didn't do anything about that because Georgia had been a Soviet client, had been a Soviet satellite, and we just weren't going to be able to do anything on behalf of Georgia other than make, you know, vocal objections to Russia and do some sanctions. And so in 2014, Putin said, well, I got away with it in 2008. I'll do it in 2014. But it was a limited operation. I mean, he, he went into those Russian ethnic areas and the United States and NATO and the world wasn't able to do too much because, you know, this was uh, it was. I mean, it was unjust under yeah, the law, yeah. but it was a limited thing and, and Ukraine was able to survive as a nation. And so, you know, sanctions and then, you know, it didn't go too well. And, and then the Trump administration came in, which, you know, Mr. Trump was always very pro-Putin, pro-Russia. So there wasn't a lot of anti-Russian activity in the administration. And so Putin was given carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. And mm -hmm. so you know, our response, both under the Obama and Trump administrations was lackluster and it just enabled Putin. And so here you go in 2022, where Putin says, well, let me just take the rest of Ukraine. I don't want them to join NATO. I, I, I want them as my breadbasket. And Putin's worldview, this is really the real reason he's invading Ukraine. His worldview from when he was a young man was always to reestablish the Russian empire. He has never been a favor of democracy. The Soviet Union, yeah, he wanted to reestablish that. Yeah. And not as the Soviet Union, but as a Russian empire. He doesn't want to go back to communism, but he wants the empire, which would be just the same, but without the Communist Party. And so he wants to not just take over the territory of these other countries, he wants to suppress the people and set up friendly puppet governments. And so that would make it an empire. And Ukraine okay. is always number one on the target. And th then the question becomes, what else along the borders? Because the Baltic yeah. states to the north um, are free democratic countries that are members of NATO. And you also okay. have Finland to the north. So it's a challenging we're, area. We're going to get on the second half of the show. And before we break, take a break, a short break, because I, I want to get deep into the geographic areas. I want to talk about Kiev, uh, Maripol. I want to talk about the areas that uh, have really been fighting tremendously and aggressively to, to hold the front. Uh, but I want to also, before we take the break, I want to, because... Um, NATO's and its alliances and its theory, because uh, it, it was established back in the, what, the 1940s. Yes. But NATO disagreeing or creating alarm about Russia invading Ukraine and its borders, doesn't Putin still have some sort of uh, a leg to stand on in the sense it would be just like Russia coming over here and invading Canada? 
being that close to our borders. That's not a, you know, the U.S. making a stink about it. It's not a declaration of peace. I mean, the border concern has to be an issue and it has to be addressed, I think. But we're going to talk more about that. We're going to take a break right now. Stay tuned to Talk Back Live. Catch you on the other side. Are we clear? Watching Can't someone hear you, Keith. You're on mute. Can be Great first half. Circumstances. And it is not always clear how best to respond when you see the warning signs of abuse. Your instinct may be to save them from the relationship, but abuse is never that simple. There are many ways that abuse appears, and there are many reasons why people stay in an abusive situation. Understanding how power and control operates in the content of abuse and how to shift the power back to those affected by domestic violence is some of the most important ways to support survivors in your life. Hi, I'm Renee Lynn Gonzalez, and those are the words from the National Domestic Violence Hotline website. And as a way to support others, I am a survivor. And a part of that is from the support of others I received. And if you know someone who is in need of help, support them by following those words and start by giving them this info. The National Domestic Violence Hotline, 1-800-779-SAFE. That's 1-800-779-SAFE. Or you can visit the website and chat with a live advocate at www.thehotline.org. Thank you and God bless. Hey, welcome to Talk Back Live with yours truly, Gloria Shea. I have a very, very special guest, retired Colonel, Army Colonel Robert Resnick and JAG uh, officer uh, for the Army. Uh, he's my special guest today on Talk Back Live. We're talking the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Interesting stuff. Uh, this guy has the good uh, uh, officer Resnick, and I'm enjoying him so much. Remember, go to the chat. If you have a question or comment for Officer Resnick, he'll be happy to, to answer that. I uh, understand we're going to answer that question. I do have a comment or question in the chat. We're going to get to that, I promise. But back to, to this, uh, the Russian-Ukraine um, and their invasion of the Ukraine and NATO. I just want to stay there for just a bit before we, we get into some other information on the second half, in the second half of the show. The premise is that it protects sovereign countries' borders. Russia it has invaded Ukraine's borders. They don't want that. Now, I understand on the onset of the show, you explained that that's a lot of propaganda. Not all, not all true. But what if, let's say, if Russia came and invaded Canada, which is so close to our borders, part of NATO, of course, Number one, we'd have to defend them. And number two, we'd have to, def you know, protect our borders. What's your thoughts on that? No, absolutely true. See, and, and so the, the difference is because it's not the same situation. NATO didn't invade Ukraine. If NATO invaded Ukraine, 
and tried to influence Ukraine's government, Ukraine's sovereignty, make Ukraine into some kind of NATO puppet state, Russia would would have every right to invade on Ukraine's behalf to defend them if they wanted, you know, if they had an alliance or an agreement or or some, you know, collective self-defense. But NATO had no hostility towards Ukraine. NATO doesn't even have hostility towards Russia. I, I don't know if your viewers understand this, but Russia almost joined NATO during Boris yeah, Yeltsin's time as I president. Read that. Yeah. And so, you know, the hostility between NATO and Russia is only because of Mr. Putin's policy. He wants to be hostile to NATO. He needs the boogeyman to achieve his worldview. And NATO is his boogeyman. And so the fact is, Russia and NATO can exist and did exist for quite a while uh, with, without problems. They're, they're not mutually exclusive. They don't exist for each other's destruction other than in the mind of Putin. And, and so, you know, if again, if NATO was committing acts of invasion, acts of aggression, and Russia was acting defensively on behalf of those nations, that would be that would be a different question. And different and altogether. And so, different you story. know, if they invaded Canada, of course, we would defend Canada because Canada was invaded, just like Ukraine is being invaded. NATO hasn't done any invading. Right. Yeah, I, I totally get it. Let's talk about the actual the capital of Ukraine. Let's talk about key because they've been there now a month. They had started this invasion a month ago, literally a month ago. I just heard on the newsfeed today that Russia is claiming success in the first half of their invasion, but clearly it hasn't been successful. They're still uh, doing the air. The airstrikes probably has been more successful than anything, but going into Kiev, let's stay there, the capital, because that's what they want primarily more than anything to take over Kiev, they have not been, Russia has not been successful. These guys, the Ukrainians have held the front. Talk yes, about have. your experience, uh, military experience, and how, how proud you are of these guys. They have held the front. Yeah, it's really an amazing story that what the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian people in support of their army have been able to do. And so, you know, Russia made some, some serious miscalculations in planning this, or maybe they didn't even plan it. Maybe the problem is maybe a very hasty operation because there, we have some evidence that the leaders of the Russian military even told Putin this wasn't a doable thing and not to do it. But of course, he doesn't listen to that advice. So it may be that uh, it may be that this is exactly what they expected was going to happen, but they were told to do it anyway. But what's interesting is, you know, you always have to determine what is your objective when you start some kind of a campaign like this. And Russia had the most difficult of objectives, which was to take control of the entire country in order to topple the government and replace it with a Russian friendly puppet government that would not be friendly to NATO. Um, that, you know, so in order to do that, they have to control enough of the country to force the Zelensky regime to fall and be able to control the country enough to prop up a new government that they would install. And so that's a very, very difficult objective. Ukraine is a large country. It's a proud country. Its people were not going to do this willingly. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing just tremendous um, defense. Now, tactically, how does this happen? There were two things. One of the problems that Russia has had has been logistics problems. And so their strategy on the map, as far as where they were staging their forces, where they were crossing into Ukraine, the, the, the routes that they were going to take were looked to be somewhat tactically sound. I mean, we don't have every detail on that. It looked like they understood what they needed to do as far as taking the centers of gravity, the main city of, of, of Ukraine, the port city of Mariupol, uh, and some of the other cities along the way. And they knew that they would have to take those. 
Uh, and they also knew that they would have to use multiple avenues of approach because you can't just have one long column. You have to come at a city, almost surround it and, uh, and isolate it and break down its defenses. So tactically, Russia used somewhat of a good strategy. There's, I think what they did wrong was that they spread themselves too thin, that they should have just come completely at Ukraine, uh, Ukraine at Kiev and maybe Mariupol uh, to prevent the sea. But uh, they should have just done a, a large scale. And then once they took Kiev, then to spread out and take some of the other major areas. It's not for me to advise them. And I'm glad they didn't do it in a more effective way. Obviously. <laughs> You're right. But I, but I think that's one of the mistakes, because if you look at their problems, they're spread too thin. They can't get their logistics up. They can't get fuel, food, uh, supplies of any kind, ammunition. I mean, you can't go to war if you don't have any of those things. Any one of those things forces you to stop. And so uh, so. To that end, the mistakes were internal to Russia in that they didn't have a proper logistics system uh, or it wasn't effective enough for the, the distance that they have to go. Just think of the thousands of miles, you know, from, from Moscow or from any, you know, internal supply points all the way through Belarus, all the way through hostile Ukraine uh, to get all the way to where they need to go as they move further west into Ukraine. That's a logistics nightmare that anybody would have faced and they, they simply weren't prepared for it. And it's going to be an embarrassment to them in that regard. The other yeah. side is the Ukrainian people, that the military has figured out, um, you know, if people thought the Ukrainian military wasn't up to standard, I guess you need to pay attention because they figured out, you know, they knew this was coming. They knew it was coming, not just because of the, of the few months that Russia was massing on their border, but since 2014, they knew this was coming. Wow. And so they, they have been planning what to do if, if Russia invaded to take over the country. And this is exactly what they're what they planned for and prepared for, and they're executing it brilliantly, because it's uh, sort of an insurgency in a way that they're they're not going to confront a larger, more powerful force head on. That would be foolish for them. What they're doing is they're fighting in key places and then moving and they're reengaging and then moving, uh, making it very difficult for Russia to overpower them militarily. And that's why their rate of movement between the logistics failures and the effectiveness of the Ukraine's military defenses are, uh, are, are, are working quite nicely that way. Let me, uh, let me the, ask uh, a question. Is the fight yeah. in Kiev still mostly in the north? Uh, because uh, from what I understand, the Ukrainians still hold control of the south. Yeah, most of the Russian activity is in the north. It's really hard to say because, as you pointed out, you know, the, the, while Russia has been stalled somewhat in its military advance as far as taking over, you know, defeating the Ukrainian military or taking Kiev, they have done uh, a, a, an atrocious air bombing campaign, an artillery bombing campaign, just destroying, you know, civilian civilians and homes and yeah. towns and everything. It's it's brutal and it's it's grossly yes. illegal and all of that. But, uh, you know, it's hard to say that it's effective, but it's effective in the sense that if they can't succeed militarily, they're going to brutalize the people into submission and, and try to do it that way as a secondary approach or a combined approach. And so in that regard, the Ukraine defenses hasn't been able to do much. They haven't really been able to stop this bombing campaign. But around the city of Kiev, you know, that's obviously they can't let Kiev fall. Right. That's that's their that's their last bastion of, of defense in a way. They, they could certainly move west and keep the government functioning. But once they give up Kiev, it, it, it's psychologically a defeat and it would be you know, militarily advantageous to Russia to take Kiev. Yeah. And then they could prop up a government there and then you'd have a battle of which government is in power. Let me let's go to we have a viewer who chimed in a question or comment here. Uh, it's from Dennis Johnson. He and he's saying here are there his question is, are there 
other silent players in this war, such as China, North Korea, or other Middle Eastern countries that haven't shown their hand yet? And how concerned should we be about that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And whenever you have a war like this, you always have to consider the geopolitical implications of that and China being a critical one. Russia thought that China was going to back them because initially they did. Uh, Xi Jinping gave Putin the green light so long as he waited until after the Olympics, which obviously he did. And uh, and China had said to Russia, don't worry about it. We'll support you. We'll buy your oil. We'll do all these things. But the problem is that China saw two things. First, they saw that Russia's inability to really wage this war. And then they saw the brutality, the war crimes that Russia was going. And, and we could say a lot of bad things about China that are true, but they don't have the same philosophy that Putin has about brutality in this regard. I mean, yes, what they're doing to the Uyghurs is, a tr- is an atrocity and, and, and they certainly don't have clean hands in the way that they treat people. But China plays a long game. They don't play the short-term game. And they, they're looking 20 years from now And they're saying they can't be on the wrong side of this. They don't want to be on the side of of Russian brutality because one of China's foreign policy things is not to interfere in other countries' sovereignty. I'll tell that to the people of Taiwan, but but China doesn't consider Taiwan to be a sovereign nation. So therefore, it's not necessarily a violation of their policy. But they they, they choose to engage economically and uh, and otherwise to overpower somebody, but they they technically try to not involve themselves in other countries domestically, at least not not on a daily basis. Hmm. And so Putin's aggression against Ukraine is inconsistent with the way China views foreign policy. And they also, of course, they rely heavily on the West for trade and and they don't want to be on the wrong side of sanctions. And and the more that NATO came together, and it's not just NATO, it's other parts of the world, too, came together with sanctions. uh, China said, you know what, we're not going to go down with this ship. So so that's an important question on China. North Korea, you know, North Korea is, is its own creature. Obviously, I don't see how they could play a role in this particular conflict, but they could certainly make noise. I mean, is it an accident? Is it a coincidence? They just tested an ICBM the other day, uh, you know, or, or they just want a little bit of love and attention too, with all the focus being on Ukraine. Who knows? Uh, they can't help Russia militarily in any way, but um, they're always a nuisance. And so the last part of Dennis's question was about Middle Eastern countries. And that's kind of interesting because there are a few countries that have given safe haven to the oligarchs who were able to sell their yachts and bring assets to the banks of a couple of these countries who we thought might support us on sanctions. They, you know, It's not like they're not friendly to the U.S. and the West. They're kind of neutral in this particular regard because they do a lot of business with Russia. They, they get a lot of money from Russian oligarchs. They, they have connections in the oil and gas industry, and they're kind of sitting this one out. And so not only are they sitting it out, but they're giving safe refuge to the oligarchs who are sailing their yachts from all over Europe and the United States or Europe and and the Western Hemisphere to a couple of these port cities, you know, Abu Dhabi and some of the others. Uh, It's unfortunate. Uh, I I don't know that it's a surprise. Uh, It's not going to change the outcome of this. It's, It's disappointing. It would be nice if they all banded together to not give Russia any outlet for its, uh, you know, its oil exports or anything like that. And China's been very slow moving. I mean, their communications on sanctions, if they would participate and, and, and uh, have, you know, publicly denouncing the Russian invasion has come very, very slow. Let me ask you this. Has the world, because we're, we're running out of time, has the world changed now? Yes. Literally? I think it has. I mean, as you started off at the very beginning of the show, this was the first or largest invasion since World War II, and it put the world on notice. We've been on notice for about the past 10, 12 years 
that democracy was being threatened by the rise of authoritarians. We have Hungary. Uh, there were some other, you know, some other, de you know, democratic governments turning a little bit more authoritarian, and the, re the rise of authoritarian parties in in countries where, uh, you know, the mainstream parties have to do a lot more to defeat these right wing or or, or extremist parties, authoritarian parties. And so this invasion of, of Ukraine put us on notice as, as just kind of how fragile it is. Now, the good news is look how NATO came together when they realized what was at stake. You know, what people need to understand about the NATO alliance is, first of all, it has 30 members and it operates by consensus. That means everybody has to agree to every decision. It's not a majority rules alliance. It's a consensus alliance. Think about how difficult it was for President Biden or for any NATO leader to get 30 countries to support whatever position they wanted, whatever strategy they wanted, what have you. When NATO was uh, intervening to, to free the Kosovars against their genocide, uh, NATO had to agree, and it wasn't 30 members at the time, it was fewer, but every, Na every NATO member had to agree to the target list. And that was a that was a nightmare because there was always somebody who didn't agree with the target. And so <laughs> that, that, you know, come full circle now, 20, 30 years later, I guess it is. Uh, and NATO, we're not doing target lists right now, but NATO is very, very firmly together. And I think that's the message for the world is democracy is not dead, folks. Democracy is going to prevail. And, and this is how NATO is going to show it. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's good stuff. Uh, I've enjoyed you so much. Before I let you go, though, there's a, another a national news uh, that's uh, buzzing around the country right now. And it's concerning uh Jeannie, Clarence Thomas' wife, Jeannie Thomas. I want to get your thoughts on that. The wife of uh, Chief Justice Clarence Thomas. And uh, he, he, they recently landed down a, uh, a verdict on Trump's uh, being able to release Trump's communications uh, that they had while he was still in office concerning the election. And it was voted eight, it was, it was voted eight to one, one being Clarence Thomas' vote uh, uh, for it. His uh, alone vote was against it. So now I understand that there's a lot of talk about his wife, Jeannie Thomas, and her tweeting out there, putting things out there on social media about her dissent and her concern uh, about uh, what has happened. What's your thoughts on that real quick? Yeah. Uh, so Jeannie Thomas, for people who don't know her, has had a tremendous career in politics in her own right. She was a well-respected figure in the conservative movement uh, in Washington, D.C., a power player, uh, you know, involved in everything, uh, you know, was a significant person. So people may not have been familiar with her name, but trust me, she was a very important person in politics and, and very well respected in the conservative movement. Somehow during the Trump administration, she went from sort of a mainstream uh, conservative person to full MAGA. And, uh, and when Trump lost the 2020 election, she started sending these ridiculous messages to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows about, you have to do everything you can to, over, you know, to, to overturn the election, blah, 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 messages like that. Now these, because Mark Meadows was chief of staff, all of these communications were sealed in the National Archives as they are for all administrations. Uh, the January 6th Committee of Congress, as well as media outlets have been petitioning under the Freedom of Informa Information Act and others to get access to these as they do for a lot of records in the archives. And the Trump administration had been denying that and had been going to court to protect them. When the case got to the Supreme Court, this was one of two decisions where the Supreme Court went against the Trump administration in, an, in eight to one decisions, both related to the 2020 election and in this specific case, the National Archives records where the Supreme Court um, ordered, well, basically their, their 
decision ultimately orders the National Archives to release these records. And part of the, what was in the records were these text messages from Ginny Thomas to Mark Meadows. Clarence Thomas, as one of the nine justices on the court, uh, because his wife was so heavily involved in probably both cases, certainly the National Archives case, ethically, professionally, and legally was supposed to recuse himself and not participate in that case, in which case maybe it would have been an eight-nothing decision in both cases, or maybe something different would have happened if he didn't participate in the debate, the discussion, but he wasn't supposed to. And so the issue now is, you know, what she did, you could consider it on a professional or a moral or an ethical basis is wrong. She didn't necessarily violate the law in her text messages um, because she didn't specifically advocate the insurrection or something. She got dangerously close, but she didn't. But Clarence Thomas had an obligation to recuse himself and didn't in both of these cases. And you could see, you know, it's, it's not sure, just because you're on the losing side of an eight to one decision doesn't mean you're completely wrong necessarily in your viewpoint. Although if you lose eight to one, it certainly calls into question. The validity <laughs> That's a majority, of I would say. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, he wasn't even supposed to participate. And, and his failure to recuse is why he's in under scrutiny right now, because people are saying, you know, that's just a basic legal and ethical premise. He shouldn't have been in this decision. And, he, and the assumption is, and I would say arguably a good one, since he didn't recuse himself, knowing his wife was involved, and he was the lone dissenting opinion, that he was trying to help his wife protect her text messages or protect her involvement in these things. Uh, and that that's even worse than just the failure to recuse. So I think that's what's going on right now. Well, thank you, Robert Resnick. I have enjoyed you thoroughly. I want to thank you so much for spending your Saturday with us here at Talkback Live and sharing some really, really good information with my viewers out there. I hope they enjoyed it as much as I have. And I, I want to give you this open invitation. You can come back anytime. We're living in dangerous times, uncertain times, and there's a lot going on right now. So um, we are glad to have you share some really good information. Before we close out of Talkback Live, I have some exciting news to share with the viewers out there. Sugar the Stage Play, I'm a co-producer right here in the city of Cleveland coming up later this year. We are moving quite along. Everything's going along just fine. We've actually, I want, there's some congratulations that I want to give out to some of the cast members who were just casted. Congratulations to them. I want to start off with uh, congratulations to Jen Jen Chandler. She's been chosen to play the nosy neighbor, Miss Irene in Sugar the Stage Play. I'm excited about that. Also, congratulations goes out to Donnie Goldie McLean. She has uh, landed the part of Sister Soldier in Sugar the Stage Play. So excited for her. And also, we have congratulations to Nick Jordan. Uh, he has been casted as one of the main characters of Levi, uh, best friend to Sugar in the stage, Sugar the Stage Play. So congratulations to those. And also, let me not forget, congratulations to Renata Davidson, better known as Renata Soul. And she has been casted as Renee in the Sugar the Stage play. So we're very, very happy. And then also congratulations to Albert Serafini. He's landed the role of Tony in Sugar the Stage play. So we're so excited and we're so happy for those that have been chosen. Uh, we're still in the, uh, in the phases of casting. We're in our last minute phase, however, of casting this magnificent play production that's coming to the city of Cleveland later this year. Stay tuned, look out for it. Tell everyone about it and be sure go to our YouTube page, like and subscribe. Thank you so much to my producer, Keith Hayes. Thank you, sir, for another great show. 
tune in. Don't forget, tune in in another two weeks. We'll have another exciting show for you. Promise. Until next time, America. Hope you enjoyed the show today. Be sure and go to our Facebook page, Talk Back, a thought-provoking talk format. That's Talk Back, a thought-provoking talk format. Leave us a review. Let us know what you think of Talk Back. It can only make us better. Be sure to check us out on Spotify. Also, Twitter, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, wherever podcasts are heard. Be sure to check us out on YouTube. Again, thank you for listening. Until next time, America. You have been listening to Talk Back with my grandma on Spotify. Be sure and catch her every weekend. Oh, and by the way, my name is Kari. Bye. <laughs>